Would you please join with me in prayer? Lord, we're grateful for this day and this time of year where we can not only celebrate the freedom and the, the independence that we have as a country, but who we are with the freedom and the independence we have in you, Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray as we look at this legacy of Jacob coming from Isaac and establishing your people, may you think our thoughts, may you bend our wills to yours, may we, O oh Lord, have our hearts warmed to the reality of who you are. For Jesus' sake we pray these. Amen. I love to get to movies early because I love to see the trailers, you know, and, and I love to pick, okay, I'm going to see this one, I'm not going to see this one, that's awesome, that looks really stupid. And more and more these days, more and more of them are seeing stupid, but I got to see Spider-Man. I got to see spider I saw Wonder Woman, great, loved it, um, and I got to see Dunkirk. My father told me about what those British soldiers went through, and I, I got to go see it. And the bravery of the citizenry of England, just fishermen, just going across the channel as they're getting bombed. Great story. Look forward to it. Well, this morning, as we continue our travel through Genesis, we begin the lengthy main feature of the life and times of Jacob, all right, through Isaac. And so, this brief verses summarize an unforgettable nutshell of the future and significance of the life of Isaac's son, Jacob. You may remember, Genesis divided into ten sections in Hebrew called Toledotes. There's ten primeval sections. Then there's ten sections of patriarchal history. And each one of them begin with, these are the generations of. What did our text begin with today? These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. And so here the Jacob Esau trailer casts brilliant light on this lengthy section of the next ten chapters of Genesis, which we're going to get to next year. All right? But here what we see is an essential and unforgettable theological trailer. You have to understand verses 19 to 34 if you're going to understand the next 10 chapters. And what this trailer teaches us about is the sovereignty of God, the state of humanity, and the hope of humanity. The sovereignty of God, the state of humanity, and the hope for humanity. Oh, the, the moral lessons that we, observe are, that we observe in Jacob and Esau here do not come from the moral virtues of Jacob and Esau, but rather from their faults. Jacob and Esau together dramatize the human predicament. Both the elect and the non-elect are hopelessly self-centered and incapable by themselves of doing consistent good. And Jacob is a scheming, devious figure and Esau is a free spirit who lives for his appetites and his passions. And along with this, we see that God's grace is not subject to our expectations, much less our cultural expectations. 
And so let's look at this, shall we? If you open up your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 25, if you're visiting with us, it's in the back of your bulletin. Let's look first at the character of God and his sovereignty. The story opens up with the focus on Isaac and Rebekah. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah to be his wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, of Padanaram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac, as you remember, is the miracle child of Abraham, born in his 100th year, Sarah's 90th year, in obedience to God and in accordance with their joy, they named him Laughter. And in Hebrew, Laughter is Isaac. So in chapter 21, verse 6, Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. And up to this point, Isaac's great distinction came from his willingness to be obedient to death. When he submitted himself to his father's offering at Mount Moriah, So scripture's brief glimpse of Isaac portrays him as a quiet, faithful, reserved guy. Not so his wife. Rebecca was the woman, the servant met her at the well, was hardworking, diligent, a go-getter. And she volunteered to water the ten camels of the bridal caravan. Did you know a camel drinks 25 gallons of water in one sitting? Ten camels. She volunteered to, what's 25 times 10? You know? There you go. She is amazing. That would have taken her two hours, two and a half hours to do that. Didn't even bat an eye. Hey, I'll water your camels for you. So when Rebecca left the caravan to marry Isaac, her family sang this blessing. Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate them. 24 verse 60. What a song of blessing. They didn't want her to go, but they knew what they were giving away. She was a treasure. Not only was she beautiful, she was hardworking. So when she met her beloved Isaac and heard him reiterate the divine promise of his offspring, it was only natural to think, well, they would soon become pregnant with child, right? Nope. She didn't. Twenty years have gone by. And Isaac is approaching 60, and beautiful Rebecca is still barren. Isaac's brother, on the other hand, Ishmael, produced 12 sons to Isaac's zero. Why? Because God is sovereign. And what God is teaching Isaac and Rebekah and all of his people and therefore us is that his promised blessing through the chosen seed of Abraham is not to be accomplished through mere human effort. That's how it always is. We saw that in Sarah. This is how it will be for her daughters-in-law Rachel and Leah. And later, it would be the same for the mother of Samson and for Hannah, the mother of Samuel. And ultimately, the promise of God's child would culminate with Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, and in Mary, the mother of our Lord. 
And so we see these twins' incredible birth. And to Isaac's unending credit, he did not resort to a surrogate wife like his father did. <laughs> and with Hagar, rather, he engaged in passionate prayer. Verse 21. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. This same word for prayer indicates an intensity, a passionate prayer. Moses used the same word as he asked the Lord to intervene for the Lord to remove the plagues in Exodus 7 through 10. To pray like that shows that Isaac wholeheartedly believed that the promise through Abraham would be fulfilled. And he prayed like this for 20 years. Today marks the anniversary of my first day among you. I've been here 10 years. Okay? I thank God for you. I thank God for your support. But, you know, hey, keep praying. That's the message. I believe God's going to use us, and that's why we're praying this summer. Let us not stop. But to his credit, he prayed in his relentless intercession culminated with great joy in the second half of verse 21. The Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. I'm sure at last he just flung Rebekah into his arms and swung her around that his laughter himself, who he was named after, finally, we're with child. And so one thing is very clear after 20 years of barrenness. Rebecca's barrenness was ended by the direct intervention of God. Rebecca's womb was born with divine given seed, and here we see God's sovereignty begin to visibly rise over this story. For this is a tumultuous pregnancy. Now, I understand, ladies, pregnancy's hard. Right? Right? I've never, someone come, never heard a woman come to me and say, boy, that was a piece of cake. But Rebecca's joy quickly faded to dismay. Look at verse 22. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? The Hebrew describes this pregnancy that the children smashed themselves inside the womb. It's like these two guys are wrestling with one another inside the womb. She doesn't know they're twins, right? There's no sonograms. All right? She felt as if her womb was a battleground, and she's in pain. And she says, why did I yearn for this and pray to become pregnant? Why do I go on living? Oh, my goodness. Some of you ladies can relate to this, right? <laughs> Remember, she is not a softy. She's a tough cookie, and yet there's mayhem in her womb. What's going on, she wondered. So she went to the Lord, verse 22b, she went to inquire of the Lord. That's where we go. And Rebecca and Isaac were living in Bir Lahai Roy. It's the same place where God had informed Hagar about the birth and destiny of her son. Possibly, Rebecca went to the exact same spot where Hagar was to seek the Lord. And then the Lord gives her this perplexing prophecy. And what she heard is very significant. And the warfare in her womb would have far-reaching results. And she learned that she would have twins 
And they would be the fathers of two separate nations, and these nations would devise and oppose each other. Verse 23a, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. And she also learned that the conventional rights of her firstborn would be overturned and their roles would be reversed. Second half of verse 23, the one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. Rebecca learned that the tumult in her womb was not of her or Isaac's making, but was the depart of a divine plan that God was working out for his own purpose and glory. And we see this all throughout Genesis. We've seen it in Cain. He had his offering rejected while his younger brother Abel's was accepted. We saw the line of Seth, the even younger brother was the chosen line in Genesis 4:26 through 5:8. We saw now that young Isaac was chosen over Ishmael. We saw that Joseph, the youngest of Jacob's son, is chosen over his brothers, and Judah was likewise chosen over his older brothers. And significantly, the New Testament makes this clear. Painstakingly clear that the order of nature does not determine the order of grace. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 27 to 29, But God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Tradition does not determine grace. Convention does not determine grace. Neither does natural giftings or natural endowments. Grace does not bow to social privilege or status. Now, most significantly, Paul argues this principle in Romans 9, 10 to 13, to show to the Jewish readers at that time that just being of the Jewish bloodline does not ensure salvation by referring to this case of Jacob and Esau. He says, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told, the older shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Sounds harsh. Jacob became the heir because of election, not because of moral virtues or good works, because the twins were not even born when the choice was made. And not only that, but God's choice went beyond individuals to nations. We know this because of the context of the quotation that Paul makes here using Malachi 1. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated, refers to the descendants of Jacob, the Jews, and the descendants of Esau, the Edomites. We prayed about that in Psalm 137. Look what the Edomites were doing to the Jews. They were casting their babies on rocks as they invaded. 
See, the selection of Jacob individually and the Israelites corporately was solely due to divine choice. And God's hatred has to be understood in the relative sense. When you hear, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. God does not hate in the anger sense Esau and the Edomites. But in comparison with the choice of Jacob and the Israelites, they were hated. Our Lord uses that language. You know, in Luke 14, if anyone, does not, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yet even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So we need to understand it's a relatively comparative relationship. And we also must understand in 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But at the same time, we must understand, and John tells us, that whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, for the wrath of God is still upon him. See, God's wrath is the outworking upon unbelieving people. Notice in all of this that God offers no explanations and certainly no apologies for his choice. The love of God transcends human customs. And in Deuteronomy 33, when Israel is asking, why do you love us? He says, it's not because you're the biggest. It's not because you're the fastest. It's not because you're the strongest. It's not because you have the most money. It's not because you're the best warriors. You are none of that. I chose you because I love you. And silence. His sovereign grace will not bow to the order of nature or human expectations. His merciful election is a fact whether we understand it or not. And I would propose this side of heaven, you're not going to understand it all. God's purposes are as set as they are incomprehensible. And so these twins are brought to birth, and God bless poor Rebecca's midwives as they witness this raw, earthy spectacle infused with divine theater. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. Verse 24 to 26. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. First, there came out this little, hairy, testosterone-filled, red-headed boy. As the midwives marveled at his appearance, they were astonished that as he came out, there was a hand holding his heel, as if pulling him back in to control the situation. And so they named him Jacob, which means heel, which means to protect as if to bring up the rear guard of the army. But as Jacob's scheming character developed, his conduct served, conduct served to devalue his name, giving it more negative meaning of heel grabber, overreacher. <laughs> and these guys couldn't have been more different. We all know our kids are different, right? I mean, you, we all affirm that. But, you know, Esau subscribed to Field and Stream... And, and Jacob subscribed to the Food Network magazine. <laughs> you know, 
verses 27 and 28, and their parents' conduct served to worsen the divide. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. It was Esau's nature to love the outdoors. He liked to hunt and fish, and his pursuits made him strong and physically confident. You could see him a mile away with his red hair. Succeeding episodes reveal that he remained a hairy guy. And he smelled of the field. You smelled him before you heard him. Okay? He was the prototype of the mountain man. And our text rendering that Jacob was a quiet man translates a Hebrew word that has the idea of a sound, solid thinking guy. It calls the level-headed quality that made Jacob at his best toughly dependable and at his worst a formidable, cool opponent. <laughs> Jacob was self-contained, he was conventional, and he was controlled. He was just biding his time. Traditionally, Isaac and Rebekah, who had prayed so long and persistently for offspring, they played favorites. Not a good idea, parents. No doubt, each, they both loved both of their sons while they each preferred one over the other. Their favoritism exasperated the situation. And so what we see in these two is the character of us. We've seen the sovereignty of God. Now we see the character of all humanity. And quite frankly, the exchange of this birthright leaves neither Jacob or Esau in a very positive light. Though in, in, in several respects, I like Esau more. <laughs> Esau was a robust, brawny man. Who was in, he was indifferent to getting ahead. He was frank, guileless. Years later, when Jacob returned from his miserable experience with Laban, Esau was astonishingly kind and generous to Jacob. Genesis 33, Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him, fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Later on in that chapter, Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. It is probable that he was more likable than Jacob. But at the same time, he lived his life by his passions. He was an immoral, unholy man. Hebrews 12 15 to 17 makes it so clear. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no one, no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it, many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he des desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. He found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Esau was shallow, governed by his feelings, appetites, and passions. Hey, you only go through life once. You got to grab all the gusto you can. He might have been more likable, but he was coarse and just a backwoods meathead. He had great hair, but that's about it. At the same time, 
Jacob is calculating. And he, this invites a flood of negatives, right? You just think about him. He's, he's just a, a rascal. He's an opportunist. He's a cheater. He's ambitious, overly so. Self-serving, grasping, scheming, somewhat heartless, exploitive, and singularly unattractive. And when you put them side by side, you wonder why God loved either of them, any of them. But when Esau comes in from the field, he spoke like the coarse meathead that he was in verse 13. Please let me swallow some of the red stuff. This red stuff because I am exhausted. Hence, he earned another nickname, Edom, which also is translated red. And the way Jacob pounced on his brother suggests this is a well-set bear trap. I got him, he thought. Sell me your birthright now. It, you know, in no way was Esau about to die. This is, this is hyperbole, right? I'm about to die, you know? It wouldn't have taken him long to make some lentil stew. Yeah. He was simply hungry and impertinent. Because if he would have said, I'm not going to give you my birthright. I value that too much. I'm the firstborn. The lion's going to come through me. I'm the firstborn. No, he says, I'm about to die. What use is a birthright to me? In Jacob's three-word reply in the Hebrew and in English, swear to me now, is the terse response of a schemer. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. That closing line gives us the divine commentary because it does not say, thus Jacob took advantage of Esau and Esau despised his birthright. It says only Esau despised his birthright. Esau's own sin sealed his fate. He had little regard for the word of God, little regard for the promises of God in his life. Therefore, when he stands before God, he alone will be culpable. I imagine as Abraham died and having the meal, these guys are teenagers at that time. Isaac sitting around just eating with his sons. Hey guys, let me tell you about Grandpa. He was a pagan moon worshiper. And God spoke to him. And it's through us and our family that we're going to be a blessing to the world. Isn't that great? <coughs> Jacob goes, yeah, Dad, that's awesome. And Esau says, can I go hunting? I got to go. Yeah, yeah, I've heard that before. I've heard that. The very heart of Esau's demise is the sad reality. He did not believe the word of God. And God's promise was to him intangible and unreal. Like perhaps some of you. You come in here and you say, well, yeah, I believe it, but, you know, it doesn't affect me that much. Really? But in contrast, Jacob believed the promise and cherished it with all his being. And ironically, the stumbling that we will see next year in Jacob's life came because though he believed in the promise, he did not believe that that promise could be his own apart from his own sinful manipulations. 
beginning right here with Esau. Nevertheless, despite all his faults and all his ungodly manipulation, Jacob stands as the man of faith. So where's the hope? Are you appalled by this? You look at all this and go, wait, you know, election, Jacob, he's a scoundrel. Yeah, he is. If you're appalled by this, first, you don't know yourself. You don't know how profoundly rebellious to God you are, which the Bible definitely calls sin. Paul makes this clear in Romans 3 that we're so sinful in our mind and our speech and our actions. Romans 3, in our mind, none of us is righteous. No one seeks God. No one understands. We also are sinful in our speech. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. So, we're rebellious and sinful in our mind and our speech. We're also in our actions. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. Such are we, if left to ourselves. In effect, we are spiritually dead. We are, as Paul writes in Ephesians 1, dead in our trespasses and sins. There's no way, unaided, that either you or I would ever turn to God apart from his intervention. Indeed, apart from Jesus, your status is that of an enemy of God. Thoroughly sinful, spiritually dead. That's the reality. Secondly, if you're appalled by this, you don't understand God. He's king. I'm not. God does what he wants because he is king. In Daniel's book, he says in Daniel 4.35, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? God is not bound by our directions. He's not bound by our cultural conventions. He's not bound by our self-righteous moralizing, or our limited knowledge. He is not tame and will not submit to the idolatrous captivity of our notions of what he should or be. He is loving and righteous, just and good in all that he has done. And because we are so sinful and helpless to save ourselves, the only possible hope for us is the atoning death of his divine son. Jesus did not want to drink that cup, but he did because it was the only way we could be redeemed. God in Jesus lovingly suffered and paid the price for our sin. That's second. And third, if you're appalled by this, you don't understand grace. Grace that is earned is not grace at all. Grace goes to the undeserving. And grace is there for you if you will come to Jesus. And if you do come, you will discover that it is all of God from beginning to end. So in conclusion, that's some trailer, huh? You know? But that's the point. I love you because I love you.
And at the last day, there will be nobody who will say, God made a decision about me that is different than mine about him. No one will, in the end, question the justice of God. And there may be some this morning who realize, you know, I, I, I'm pursuing the wrong path. I've, uh, I've been doing it maybe a long time. Be encouraged if that's you this morning. The very fact that you're thinking that way right now is a sure sign that God is speaking to you. God is opening up your eyes and ears and heart and is drawing to you to himself. For whoever he draws will come to Jesus Christ. So let's turn to him. We're going to turn to him and pray. Psalm 95 says, Today, if you hear his voice, harden not your hearts as your forebears did. And Jesus says in John chapter 6, If all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Let us come to this God, the God of Abraham, the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, who eventually gave us Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, you tell us that all who come to you will never be cast out, and we do that just this morning. We thank you for this story, for when we look at Jacob, we see a conniving, scheming, heel-grabbing person. But yet, that's who we are in some aspects of our lives, Lord. We try to manipulate. We try to cajole. We try to control. And Lord, we recognize that apart from you, there's no hope. And we come to you, Lord, more with just intellectual assent this morning. We're not just going to say we believe, but we're going to believe with a trust in what you have done for us upon the cross, Lord Jesus Christ. That's trusting you as our Savior, because we're total sinners. And Lord, we're going to receive you as Lord, as King, as Ruler, and give you our lives to do with as you wish. Lord, make us soft to your purposes, and may we live for you as we walk in the beauty of the patriarch's faith. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.